funk with her. Sitting on the suit with my mother and my brother and my nephew. My nephew's mother sneezed. I too, I said, bless you, thank you. She replied, I sighed. My mother said, what's wrong? My brother played a funky song on the box right next to me. But my nephew's expression looked vexed to me. So I tried to cheer him up. I said, what's up, little DCJ? Hey, you should be smiling. It's a sunny day. The family's together out in the good weather. Mom, should I sing a song? She said, whatever, clever, Trevor. So I opened my mouth, began, and I sang. Dwayne, you is a funky little man. Sure enough, I got results. Dwayne cracked a smile. My mom said, Moni, you the talented child. I'ma go see my friend who has a job as a producer to hook up a beat that maybe you can get used to. She took a long stretch to the producer man's quarters. He said his Moni's time. Mom said, no, but she ordered. He said, well, bring her over so I can get a view. And then after that, I don't know exactly what to do. My mother came back. She said, pack up all your demos to play the producer. I said, why? She said, who knows? Suppose you get a break. It's a chance I have to take. You my daughter. I love you. I think this is your fate. I went along over the producer man told her. Moni is a talented child. She said, I'm over. Talent runs in the genes. But back to the point, if you know what I mean. Will you help my daughter to get hurt and seen? He said, sure. Just cross my palm with the green. Okay. Here's your receipt. I'll see you next week. She did so, said thank you, they grabbed me, said let's go. Locked me in my room and said write a funky song, mo, yo. I have my quads, but yo, I stay calm. Wrote on the paper until it was full right up to the city top line. And then I just knew that success would be mine. Anyway, I took my rhyme sheet to the producer, along with the beat because he was falling, frontin' and all, but yo. I hooked it up quick, fast in the basement, it was funky. For funky music, there is no replacement. Producer man looked up at me, said we win. Yeah. I said, we since when has this been? Your basement, which my mother paid you generously for. Therefore, I've been set of the score. You had the chance to contribute this and that, but you ain't do nothing but sit on your butt the slap. I'ma take my rhyme sheets along with my master take step forth into the industry of which it is my fate. She said, How anybody know I ain't write the song? I'ma give you hell if you try to do me wrong. I said, Brother, I'll sweep the floor with you in court. Got names and numbers of all the people who bought that tussy, tussy, plastic personality. Trust me, you must be running from reality. If you feel you can stop me, bro, I'm releasing my cut. Don't funk with Oh, wow, that's dog. I can't believe this. Back up on the street with my mother and my brother and my nephew. My nephew's mother screamed. It's you. How'd it go, Moni? It went as well as I expected. The last few months, I've been totally accepted. But what about the fellow employees within the industry? My mother asked. They'd be all right as long as they don't mess with me. I know the ins and outs, and I'm learning all the time. I won't be taken for a ride. Blind. And mama sued the friend who had a job as a producer. He moved out the neighborhood because he is a loser. He tried to jeopardize what I was working hard towards, so I cut him off and said, Don't funk with the mold. 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 That's why I don't even like doing nothing for people, you know what I mean? It ain't worth the money. Hello again, Latin America and the world. Um, Hello again. <laughs> Joel's here with me, as usual. We're in our living room. Um, I wanted to say a couple things as I'm getting started before we jump into the material. Um, so I read... Uh, the 16 or so paragraphs that came in um, in response to the reading for, which was actually for today, I suppose, um, uh, April 1st. Don't say um. <laughs> I know. Tell I'll mom. tell you guys a funny story in just a second um, after I finish this part, which is um, that they, they look great. Uh, for some of you guys, I wrote comments back to your paragraphs. Um, other ones, I, I didn't have any particular comments. 
Uh, so you may or may not have a comment on your paragraph. If you have not yet submitted those, um, and I'm going to send an email out that says this, but try to get those in. I would like those in on the day that we would have had class. Um, if you didn't do that this time, no worries. Just uh, get the one for the OAS and Tickner reading in as, as soon as you can. Um, and then from here on out, if you could have those in on the day of class, uh, that would be great. I, I'm trying to read them and keep up with them as I go. Um, so I'm reading what your thoughts are. Anyway, so that that's, a, that's an update. I'll tell you one other story is that my mom is by herself in North Carolina. She's very lonely. It's just her and her cats. And um, so I, t I told her that she, if she was really missing us, that she could listen to our podcast. Um, so she listened, I think, probably back to back to the podcast that we made about Rousseau and then the podcast that we made about for this class is on the OAS. Um, of course, my mom is not taking either of these classes. So I ask her what she thinks of it. And she all she tells me is <laughs> that we said, um, and... I forget what other other filler words that she thought we said too much. And then I asked her whether she thought it was boring, and it was like crickets. There was sort of dead silence on the text. She didn't respond. Thanks, Mom. So <laughs> thanks, thanks, Mom, my, my not biggest fan. Um, anyway, so I, I but it sounded like from your paragraphs that you guys were at least enjoying the podcast a little bit. So Should we jump right in? You want me to just jump in with this first thing? Uh, yeah, so the book we're talking about today, the chapters that you read were from a book called Narconomics by a guy named Tom Wainwright. Um, and I think that's all That's all Joel all knows right. about so where we are So today. here we go from page three. The more I wrote about, uh, about El Narcotrafico, the more I came to realize what it most closely resembled, a global, highly organized business. Its products are designed, manufactured, transported, marketed, and sold to a quarter of a billion customers around the world. Its annual revenues are about $300 billion. If it were a country, it would rank among the world's 40 largest economies. The people who run the industry may have a sinister glamour about them with their monstrous nicknames. I almost thought that said mustache nicknames. <laughs> monstrous <laughs> nicknames. But whenever I met them in person, their boasts and complaints tended to remind me of nothing so much as those of corporate managers. Time and again, the most ruthless outlaws described to me the same mundane problems that blight the lives of other entrepreneurs. Managing personnel, navigating government regulations, finding reliable suppliers, and dealing with competitors. That seems like the classic story of all organized crime. I mean, this is the godfather. This is the wire. This is like every organized crime story is about the way in which it resembles legitimate business. So I don't know why this guy was so surprised, right? <laughs> I mean, like, he probably watched The Godfather, right? I mean, this is... <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe You know not. what I mean? Who knows? Um, yeah. I Well, I think that... I don't know. I, I guess maybe we could punt this back to, to the students, and you could think about this a little in your paragraph. Did you find that surprising, um, given the sort of contemporary TV shows that you guys might watch about organized crime, or did this seem like a given, like you already were expecting this to be? You know? I mean, there are, different, there are differences, of course, right? The fact that it's illegal means that those problems, those mundane problems are dealt with in a set of different parameters and constraints. And so your capacity to solve problems, your, I mean, in a sense, what is taken out of it, right, is um, 
you're operating in what I would presume to be a low trust environment, right? So it's it's an ordinary business, but in a highly in a low trust environment. Right, potentially. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that if we go, I think there's one of your one of the quotes that I gave you for later here. Hand me that stack, and I'll find it. Um, Showing them how the sausage is made it here. Is really it's sorry, I'm not even really talking into that mic at this part. Oh, it's this last one that I had for you that Mom's maybe makes sense to read now. Brutality. This <laughs> is from my mom listens. She told. She also told me I listen to professional radio. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, Mama, I, this I, is not professional not radio here. This is not pro here. Uh, page four. She spent too much time with Paul Brown. <laughs> page forty-nine. Uh, brutality is an essential part of the business because criminal organizations cannot use the legal system. Violence is the only way for them to enforce contractual agreements. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. So it's a less about trust in that sort of explanation, but more about that. You know, any of the remedies that you would have in a traditional business relationship to use the legal system for enforcement, you have lost. Right. Uh, right. And so that then, whether or not you trust your partner, if your partner, for whatever reason, defaults or whatever you want to call it, right, that there's no legal remedy for that to be Right. And I guess it's solved. an interesting question about, I mean, this is, these are interesting questions that I'm sure you have talked about in this class and possibly in, in other classes, right, is which is a more powerful way of managing these problems, right? So if the problems that the businesses are dealing with, these illegal businesses are dealing with, are managing personnel, navigating government regulations, and finding reliable suppliers, dealing with competitors, what is a more powerful way of doing that and enforcing your agreements and contracts? Is it legality or is it violence? Sure, right. I guess that's an open question. I mean, I, my, I would guess, though, I mean, I, I, there's, I have no idea that there, that there should be an empirical answer to this, but I'm sure there's not because there's not the data, right? Um, now I'm going to be aware of every time I say it. Uh, but the, the thing that I would think about that is in some ways I would actually expect the response, d the sort of default or whatever we want to call, the sort of defection or whatever, to be almost similar, right? Because there are certain circumstances in which it's either going to be, A, more lucrative to flout the contract, Right, um, right. Or that you just can't, right? That there are going to be situations in which you are bankrupt or the equivalent where you actually lost the money, you didn't make the money, right. you didn't, right. you know, whatever that um, prevents that from, from you being able to actually make good on your obligations. And so right. then the only way in order to sort of prevent other actors from potentially doing the same thing is for there to be some kind of consequence, which would either be a legal process What's or sort of interesting to think about, this is actually gets really interesting, right? So if I think about this in, if I think about one of the ways that, the, that legality protects both parties, right? The legal system protects both parties to a contract, right? Bankruptcy protection, for example, is a way that I can protect myself from uh, someone who I've contracted with extracting money that I can't pay, right. right? And if you're in a if you're in an illegal economy, right, where there's not bankruptcy protection, mm -hmm. you end. I mean, it's that's interesting, right? That it, that actually the legal protections, the legal parameters that shape business operations, actually are protecting both members of a contract and not just not just one, right? And so, I don't know. I guess that's interesting to me. Yeah, no, I think there is something there, right? I mean, I suppose that you could try to renegotiate your contract with, you know, your higher-up dealer when your money gets stolen. 
and maybe they're sympathetic and maybe they shoot your knees, right? I mean, you know, exactly, sort of right? you don't, yeah. Right, or maybe you know you can't pay. And so you, you uh, I don't know, create a trap for your higher-up dealer. You right, kill right, them when right. they come to right, collect. Right, or, or you, like you know, rat them out to the cops. Or, or you rat whatever, them out to right. the cops, right? But there's, uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. The other thing that I, I didn't um, give you any of this, but that is a kind of interesting way of dealing with some of these problems, uh, if we are thinking about, and I think that there is something interesting, though I think, there are probably places where it breaks down to think of these um, drug cartels only in economic terms. But one of the sort of ways that some of these personnel problems get managed in the case of the gangs in El Salvador um, is through the extensive tattooing. Um, tattooing? Tattooing, yeah. So basically the I don't – The ink game is pretty strong, right? The <laughs> ink game is very strong. Pretty strong. It beats Syracuse, um, <laughs> who has a strong <laughs> ink game. Um, yeah, what's the tattoo show like in, <laughs> in El Salvador? San Salvador. Yeah. Uh, so one of the San Salvador. One of the things that I mean, this is that was is dark because there's so much violence associated with this, right? Um, but there's a lot of facial tattooing, tattooing of the hands, this kind of thing. So it's tattoos that essentially make you very identifiable to your gang, who, in some sense, if we're thinking about it in this economic way, is your employer. Um, so it basically makes you unable to defect to a better – you can't, like, decide that a rival gang has better pay, so you're going to defect and go to the rival gang. It's like a non-compete agreement. You have right. your one gang's tattoos all over your face, right? Right. It also means you can't defect into the legal economy because – You have gang tattoos have all over your face. gang <laughs> tattoos all over your face. So in Challenging. A, in a way that – I mean, and it, if we think about this as actually – and I, this book – I don't know if it does too much with this stuff, but, I mean, in a, a lot of ways, the, these are coercive. The joining of the gang is not uh, entirely by choice, right? right? Children, young boys are teen, young teens and really kids. I mean, kids that are not much older than our kid are being sort of pulled into these gangs, and then they're sort of marked, actually literally marked for life um, right? with these tattoos. So I think it... It's another way of thinking about some of these problems where you don't have the normal sort of legal apparatus, legal and market tools in some ways that's like enforcing certain kinds of it's using different techniques to kind right. of right. And deal with your personnel issues. This is instead of HR, you get the face tattoos. Right. right? I mean, and so in a sense, it's it's a way in which violence as a tool of solving ordinary business problems in in these ways that you've described, it extends into the future, right? It's a more extensive, it's a permanent solution. In some of these. In many, in yeah, many instances, in whereas a lot of legal remedies are temporary, right? Like a non-compete agreement between someone who works at Goldman preventing them from to go to right. Barclays right. is like five years, right. right? And then you can go. Right. Whereas these face tattoos, you're marked for life. Right. Though, right? I, I mean, as one of the things that I think gets pointed out in some of the chapters that the students read is those lives tend to be sadly extraordinarily right. short. short right. right. So, I right. mean, the non-compete agreement may be longer than some of these youth's right. lives because the violence is... Um, right. So it's not the... It, I guess it is the permanence rather than... Right. Rather than the time, time horizon. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just permanence. But that because they're permanent, it means time horizons are right. are shrunken yeah for some people 
And the people that we're talking. Heavy thought. This is heavy. And the th- this it is, is a heavy, heavy class. It's a heavy. It, this material is pretty heavy. This is a little late to be talking <laughs> about such heavy stuff. I don't want to sleep. Well, the other thing I was going to say is your non-compete agreements tends to be talking about executives, right? This isn't like the schmo that's like cleaning right, the. Right. This is much more like Amazon searching its employees. Yeah. Right. right? I mean, this that is kind of coercion. This is I mean, much it's, more. It's far darker. Yeah. I just mean like that level. Yeah, the, the, the giant bigwigs that are making all the money aren't covered in face tattoos. Would be my guess. Maybe they are. I don't know, but my guess is that they're able to cross much the more next easily. CEO of Goldman, Post Malone. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, all right, let's keep going here. Drugs like beef. This is page five. Have to go through a long value-added chain before they reach their final street price. The $340 million blow to organized crime that Wainwright discusses, having been reported in newspapers, was a fantasy. The loss incurred by the criminals who owned the drugs was probably less than 3% of that amount. you got to fill me in. What's this $340 million loss? All right, so Wainwright was basically talking about one of these big drug busts, but it sort of stands in for any of these big drug busts that we might get hear about in the news in the United States or in Europe or wherever we're, you know, the sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, drug-consuming world, let's say. Um, Drug busts by the drug-consuming world. Yeah, so let's say that, like, this this example, I think, was a giant stash found in Tijuana. Um, And so it gets sensationalized as, like, whatever, what was it, $340 million worth of marijuana, or I think was the example in the book. Um. But he's saying this price is false okay. in the sense that the – and one of the things that I like about this is seeing – partly because this class is about the, the sort of external relations, right? And you see, like, the, 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 the supply chain of these drugs goes through many, many, many different um, countries and many different points. And that the product okay. that made – the street value of that product, of all that – marijuana or cocaine or whatever might be this exorbitant amount right but that if you're actually thinking about what that was worth in the moment it was in the tijuana um warehouse or whatever it was not that right right? it's worth that in the united states it's worth that by the time it hits yeah like if you divvied all of that up into the whatever dime bags but like a giant pile of marijuana branches and marijuana plants or Or even packed packed and ready to be distributed but still in yeah is not actually right no one has that that's eventually that could have sold for that but that wasn't what was actually sort of lost by by the organization yes so it's not as crippling a blow it's why these giant drug busts that prosecutors like to sort of tout as they you know advance their own political careers why these this is like a lot of inflated puffery right and it might i mean it's not to say that it isn't a big blow to whoever lost that but it's not that they actually lost three hundred and forty million dollars or whatever, right? That they're right. the you know when Wainwright says what they lost is probably three percent of that. Um, right. That's maybe what was put into it. There is probably, if he was being more honest, if they had actually made it across the border, their profit would have been in between that figure that is cited from the street figure and that 3% of what has already, the inputs that have already gone into it, right? Right. Um, Because that is actually the most lucrative part of the drug trade, is that guy. The street level, no. 
What's the most no, part? the guy, the trafficker that takes the most risk and brings that big quantity over and then sells it to the wholesalers. The guy who puts it in the truck. Well, maybe not the, literally the that guy. Right, not that the guy. <laughs> but the like the person the who person directs the labor moving that, the person the who controls the labor correct. that drives it across the border. Correct. The person that's actually moving that mass who quantity of people? drugs. Um, who moves I mean, that? so some of that would be your kind of El Chapo. Okay. Right. These these like cartel so he's leaders that, hands on, that are right? like the those well, that that character. That, that character is is coordinating the getting of the drugs from the producers and the transit of the drugs into the consuming society. Okay. Does that make sense? So that's that's where the most money is made. So that seems to me like that's an important. So I don't know. I don't know if we know this because empirically understanding some of these organizations is challenging for obvious reasons but when i think about that i think about how that figure we talk about el chapo as if he's like a ceo right to use Mm -hmm. this wainwright thing he's like a ceo Mm -hmm. but a ceo is not so hands-on at that moment right well el chapo isn't either right i mean he's not he's not driving that truck but he is coordinating the sort of so presumably, I mean, again, I don't know what this, I haven't, nothing, I've read quite a lot about drugs and drug trafficking, and nothing that I've read talks exactly about this stage. But what I would imagine. But if it's the riskiest stage, it seems like one of the most interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is though, I mean, I don't know who's, you have some trouble here because this is high level bribing and high level right. sneaking, right? right? I mean. There's right. complicity clearly on the U.S. side. Of course. Right? Of course. That y- I mean, you can't traffic that quantity of drugs that we know is trafficked across the border without complicity of right. U.S. Right. actors as well. Right? right. I mean, this isn't – I mean, it's so sort of – So in a sense, the people who are making the money in this instance – I mean, part of, what, part of what you see here is that you've got this – it's this value – it's this – it's like this pile of cash – that is like it's almost like an it's like an open air cache in a flatbed truck that's like going in the wind and little pieces like pieces of the pile are floating off because at every stage someone has to be involved and someone and because it's illegal someone has to be greased someone has to be right so like by the time it hits the street so many different people have extracted some value right and in that way i guess it's like any other commodity but in a certain regard, you could think of it like an hourglass. Like an hourglass. Good. That's right? good. Right. So that you have many farmers down at the bottom, who we'll talk about here in a little more detail in a minute. And then as you start sort of going up, right, you're going to have fewer and fewer people that are sort of coordinating the transit and right. you know, this kind of thing. I mean, certainly you still right. have people that are driving the trucks, like the actual sort of – but that that – begins right. to get narrower and then it's going to start enlarging again once it crosses right. the border and, and turns into, into right those people that are actually selling it right. to people on the streets right, right. That, that that then expands dramatically again kind of like those farmers and those people aren't the ones that are making huge amounts of money right, right. the people that the are selling right. yeah D- down the street dime bags that yeah the right. guys at that house that down the street right, right. you know they're clearly not making very much money <laughs> We have a. If you guys want to read some crazy Syracuse.com articles about this house down the street from us, one of them is titled something like "Man with Hatchet Shot by Police <laughs> Shot on New by Year's police. Eve," something like yeah. that. 
yeah, anyway, that's not far from our house here in, in the Keith. All right. Uh, page seven, banning drugs, which seems sensible at first. Does it, though? Um, has <laughs> handed the exclusive rights to a multi-billion dollar industry to the most ruthless organized crime networks in the world. <laughs> so, okay, I'm not trying to be a jerk or nothing. I know you assigned this book, but, <laughs> like, on the one hand, page three, the dude's like, they're just mundane CEOs. <laughs> and here, page he's seven, he's ruthless. like, this is the most ruthless organized crime syndicate in the world. I mean, which is it, right? Like, well, which is it? It's both, I think, actually. Ooh. I think it is both. Uh, the, the all right, all right, when all he, right. In that page three part when it says the crazy nicknames. Monstrous nicknames. Monstrous mustache, mustache nicknames. There's a little aside that, that's like, you know, somebody he's talking to is nicknamed like the child eater or something, right? Some horrible thing. But, I mean, these things do coexist, right? That these are businessmen that are carrying out these business and operations. I guess business people are ruthless. Like, some of that shit on Wall Street is probably it ruthless as fuck. It's probably ruthless. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Also, I mean, but not, not ruthless. killing people. But I was going to say, not ruthless. Like, I mean, dis dissolving people in bats yes. of acid. This is where I was going to go with this. It's different. The, 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 it's different. different. Stabbing someone in the back and being like a two-faced liar that steals money from a right. competitor or I mean, although this jared kushner guy's dad like he like organized a prostitute to sleep with his sister and then videotaped the whole thing and then blackmailed his own fucking i mean some yeah. of those people are fucking yeah i mean sure enough sure enough. i mean that's but not dissolving people in acid yeah and like yeah i mean massacring sure. you know maybe okay all right all right so they are yeah. ruthless organized crime networks and, I mean, I think that this goes back to our beginning conversation about the fact that without legal contracts, you're using violence to... Ruthlessness. Yeah. But the part that I like about this, though, is this, especially as we think about this, though, in terms of, you know, as we, we're going to be thinking about this issue and problem, you know, we started in our the, the material on the Tickner, right, on Columbia, thinking about U.S. drug policy... And now we're thinking a little bit more in depth about the inside of how cartels work and how they're very much not single state entities, right? So, yes, okay. the production almost – so, for example, with cocaine, right, almost – I think all of the coca, so the leaf that is the input for – the primary input for cocaine, is all grown in what Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia – Three countries. Three countries grow right? all the cocaine. So the they coca. grow all the coca leaf. and But nonetheless, right, the production of that drug is much more globalized. The Where it's consumed is much more globalized. And so you have, if we're thinking about an international, uh, this in this more international foreign relations side, this is something that affects the region that no single country can, can deal with alone. And, I mean, you okay. see that in these sort of the attempts um, – I don't know, am I getting ahead of myself? Maybe so. I'll, I'll wait a little minute before I say some of it. But I think this quote, what was the quote again? The quote reads, banning drugs, which seems sensible at first, has handed the exclusive rights to a multi-billion dollar industry to the most ruthless organized crime networks in the world. Right, but I think the thing that's interesting about this is that sense that you have just taken a product that is extraordinarily lucrative and ceded its markets entirely to non-state actors. This is not taxed, right? I mean, if we're thinking about some of these countries, especially as 
um, you guys in class are thinking about the countries that you're representing in the OAS, how poor some of them are, how weak the states are, um, and what if this stuff was taxed, right? You know, what would that change about the, you know, regional dynamics given this mass quantity of money that we're talking about, apart from all kinds of other things that we could think about, about what if these were enforced with legal contracts instead of with violence. Right? So here's what that makes me think about is how it makes me think about Wegmans and their kombucha brand. Okay. All right. So Wegmans in, in the beginning, right? There's a great market for new age beverages, Yeah. right? Big market for new age beverages. I don't know and if so you guys aren't from an area that has Wegmans. There's a drink section in Wegmans, which I thought was hilarious when we first moved up here from places without Wegmans that's called literally New Age Beverages. Right. So huge market for snake oil fermented drinks. We love snake oil fermented love drinks love, in our house. Love kombucha. Love kombucha. Um, snake oil, but tasty snake oil. Um, there's a big market. And for a long time, right – for a long time before Wegmans introduced its own line of kombucha, they were carrying all kinds of small producers' kombucha. Sure. You could get some great kombucha from Olympia, Washington. You could. You it was amazing, You could get great kombucha actually. from Rochester. You could get great kombucha from all over the place. Yeah. Right? And suddenly, after several weeks, right, right they, they, they shut it out, and they're marketing their own shit, which is far inferior. Yes. Right? And so in a sense, right, this idea of legalization, in a way, I mean, whatever. I'm sure it's great as far as solving the violence problem, but it, it, to you your question about like what happens if you, you get mass-produced cocaine, you get mass-produced shitty-ass cocaine. <laughs> that to be clear, we're not, we don't have a stake in this. Yeah, this I'm joking here, <laughs> but but you get mass-produced cocaine that is then ultimately produced by incumbents in marketplaces that have market power already. Right. I mean, this is the question. This is the problem that we deal with now with the marijuana legalization. Absolutely. Where absolutely. you've got all kinds of informal networks that are just being co-opted, right? And so, so uh, Wait, but maybe solving the violence I mean, problem is, is, is an okay. Presumably, drugs become corporate, right? Right. And what right. that does is questionable. And, and, but here's the part that's wild too, right? I mean, what you just said was that it was a multinational thing, right? And so, wow, it's another moment of neo-imperialism. Where like fucking Philip Morris right. is taking over the global marijuana market. I mean, that's where we're headed. I think. We'll see. I mean, it's I don't know, it's, it's I don't know shit about this, y'all. <laughs> this is me, the political theorist, riffing on your I mean, course material. I think that's an absolutely reasonable outcome, which has, I think, certain deleterious, like bad effects on these countries. But then, I mean, solving the violence problem. Maybe it's worth it, right? Like maybe, maybe as maybe the OAS says yes, that's worth it, and they put out some reports. Yeah, we're gonna that, that's a, like a spoiler for uh, Joel doesn't even know for our next uh, next class. We're gonna think a little bit about. So ahead here, so <laughs> ahead here. <laughs> I'm always on the cutting edge, you You're know. On the cutting like edge. Like when I brought the Baja, Baja back. back. You guys know about the Baja? It's one of the greatest garments ever. Look it up. Uh, <laughs> P- I brought it back. I'm I'm single-handedly responsible for re- returning that to. I'm not sure you could say returning it to what to exactly. What, to but what the <laughs> Faraday drug dealer. 
No, because I don't know who wore it. But who it, I, wear a Baja? I, I will have know. to admit that Joel pulled the Baja out of my closet. It was actually first Yo. mine. All right. <laughs> it's a good, it was a good Baja. It was a good Baja, yeah, but we gave I it know. away. It was a mistake. We should have kept what? it. It was a blunder. <laughs> it was a blunder. <laughs> All right, page 14. As acre after acre of coca has been poisoned, burned, and sprayed, farmers have gone out and planted more bushes to replace the ones that have been destroyed. The result is the total output has not changed much. In 2000, following the first decade of intensive eradication measures, a total of about 20, I'm sorry, a total of about 220,000 hectares of land was successfully used to grow coca in South America, almost exactly the same as the amount in 1990. So wild that we still use these bizarre measures of real estate, this hectare. I mean, well, that's Latin American. So it's translated in the book into acres because that's what we use. Okay. But in Latin America, they use hectares. I feel like you would. St- I, oh, okay. I feel like you would still read that anywhere. Hectares. You think? I, I don't think know. it's like a totally legit, normal measure of. Maybe. In Latin America, nothing is in funny. acres. It's, it's all like calling in things cubits or it's like measuring <laughs> it's things all in, in cubits or whatever. I just assumed it was like that. We in the U.S. were kind of backwards with our acres, kind of uh, like with our inches and maybe feet so. instead of meters. Maybe so. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we're the only ones that use inches, right? In the Brits. In the Brits. The Brits use it too. They're not, but they're. I thought it was like some British thing. But they use, why do we use miles? Because they, they're on kilometers and kilos and stuff like that. Oh, right? but maybe that we don't, I don't know. Are we the only ones? I don't, I don't know. know. Anyway. I don't know. This All right, so this is someone just Someone can saying, tell us. So this is just <laughs> saying can tell us. that the eradication strategy has been an absolute failure. Correct. And that it's done nothing to cut down on the number of whatever agricultural unit you want to use to Correct. describe uh, area unchanged. Unchanged. So yeah. another data point in the way in which a prohibitionist strategy has failed, and a supply side strategy has failed. Correct. Correct. And one of the reasons is that it's so lucrative that there's what it gets called all these kind of fun names. I think in the U.S. we call it the balloon effect, which is like basically if you squeeze a balloon, the air just like poofs out a different part. It's like those kids' party balloons. Yep. So that this is happening. And And all the children are laughing. It's like a clown (laughs) doing it. And the kids are like, (laughs) that's my class. That's my class laughing at U.S. policy. Yeah. that's what I heard. I heard this class is just like totally dogging on the U.S. It has. It has been a bit. The U.S. Class. has not come off good in this. Well, I mean, it's making some stupid decisions. Like whether you what whether you want to call them nefarious or what. Yeah, like absolutely. They're, they're empirically stupid. Empirically, they blunders. have not been. They have not been the smartest. Well, at least in terms of the effects that they purportedly would have on the rest of the world, right? In right. terms of U.S. policy. Right. They're not, right? for, I mean, they're not the actually th- trying to solve it. It's position this is, taking. This is what I feel like I wrote in response to many of your paragraphs, right? Is that, I mean, yes, th- it fails in the sense that it has not helped. Like, it did not, U.S. policy did not help Colombia, right? But right. it maybe certainly helped politicians but, right. in the John United Katko, States. John my representative, his whole thing, his entire political career is built on, I prosecuted gangs in Puerto Rico. Right, right. Like what prosecute? What did you do? You did shit, right? Like but you got a bunch of Puerto Ricans in our city who are coming from the same gangs that you supposedly prosecute. Like you did shit, dog. Like, but 
but but everyone you loves can, you and you can and credit you get claim and, you and can it's credit easy claim. to credit claim because any of the bad because effects, no one knows shit about it, it exactly right so i mean like nobody in the in like our district in new york is like reading about like the like human rights violations in what Columbia. if they were i mean what if people be... in upstate new york were actually reading about the rest of the world it would be great what kind of world would that be they would all be in my class maybe they could all listen to my podcast <laughs> When our podcast available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goes viral. You know, let's tell everyone about our Casper mattress. All right. So next one. Wait, but the other the other thing that gets called in the in Latin America is the cockroach effect because if you get them out of one room, they just take up residence in another. Yeah. I just like those names because they're silly. La cucaracha and the balloon, right? And the balloon left something. All right, page 16 and 17. Drug cartels like Walmart tend to be monopsonies, dominant buyers of a given product. They're able to dictate prices to the ordinary farmers who are growing drug crops. Yes, it's a hard time out there for a campesino, right? Correct. That's what this is all about. Correct. So It's a hard time out there. It's hard out there for a campesino. And and this is connected to what we just talked about, which is that the eradication policies don't affect the bottom line of that guy that uh, of El Chapo, right? If he's our stand in, right. I mean he's clearly not in business in the same way anymore. But yeah, Sean Penn really uh <laughs> isn't that right? It's like Sean Penn that's <laughs> Oh yeah, right, went and hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did like some interview with him or something. Yeah, and I think ultimately led to his capture. Right. Yeah. That's I think hilarious. that's right. Um in any case so those guys aren't the ones that are taking the price hit from this eradication, right? Um, what you're seeing here is that the eradication policies are basically squeezing the wrong actor. So in the sort of way in which Walmart, instead of taking a hit, if the price of, I don't know, the widgets to make the sprinkler systems that they're selling goes up, they still pay the same for the sprinkler you know, apparatus, and it's the company that has to eat that the increased labor, price of the right, widget, who right? Who passes it down to the weakest link Correct. in that supply chain. And the, because drug, um, the drug market tends to be a monopsony in these areas where you're buying, say, okay, we've been talking about coca, so we'll use the coca again. In those areas, it's not like the illegal coca grow. Right, these growers are growing an illegal product, so they're not like going out and being like, "Who's the highest buyer that I can get but for my coca?" Right? Coca no, well, there is. <laughs> <laughs> there is in Bolivia. I knew that. Um, but even with that, right? They're not really selling that coca on some kind of open market, and so the the buyers are dictating prices, and so that means because that it's illegal, and because there's not choice. I mean, that happens and because there's not choice. What do you mean? So a lot of these farmers are very isolated. Um, okay. I don't know if you guys remember from the reading, there was some discussion about these road, like these crazy roads that Tom Wainwright is on. And I mean, it sounds all very dramatic, but it, I mean, one of the things that it, it should be alerting you to is this sort of poor infrastructure in a lot of these rural areas in Latin America. And what that means is that those farmers, those campesinos who are growing these things, have a very difficult time getting out to market. And so when the people come to buy their stuff, they're kind of reliant on on those whatever price those people are offering. And that's true, honestly. So in a sense, what drives people into the market 
is their own isolation, the difficulty of getting anything else to the market. Well, yes and no. So I was going to say, I mean, some of this also would exist if they were selling potatoes, right? If they they have a hard time, if there's only one potato buyer that comes, they have to sell at whatever price that potato buyer says. Right, right, right. Coffee as well, right? Exactly. Um, Rural, mountainous. Yeah, and then this is exacerbated with an illegal crop, right? Because it's even more challenging to get, like, what's the market rate on coca? You know, it's right. even if you improve technology and they got a cell phone, right? I mean, like, what right. are we and even? someone shows up with guns and says, sell us your shit. Yeah. We'll give you five pesos per kilo or whatever. Right, and you just take whatever And you saying. take whatever because you're not like, well, let me wait and see what the deal is from the next guy. Yeah, but they, right? there is no next guy. There's because, no next guy. Because drug cartels tend to be geographical right they control territory and so the other like other drug guys aren't going to come by later and make you a different offer because they'd be killed by the first drug guy even if you the right i mean in a even sense, if the it's buyer a rural is mafia right i mean it's it a, is they're it's in like control of that territory right but they may not be threatening you and they may not have to because in spite of the fact that as the book mentioned a lot of these like coca growers are only making something like two dollars a day coca tends to still be more lucrative than the alternate crops Right, so that you still would likely make more, even if your coca deal is shitty, than if you were selling, say, in Bolivia potatoes or um, mm-hmm. coffee berries. Right, it's more variable. Sometimes you might actually make a decent profit off that, and other times not. Um, yeah. Page thirty-five and thirty-six. A professor from the University of Juarez noted that the traffic of drugs is like a river. If you try to dam it, he brings his hand down with a smack. It goes everywhere. Complaining about Calderon sending the army to crush any signs of trafficking, he grudgingly admires the way the war is selectively fought north of the border. We have to learn from the United States. Their drugs are moved around. The wholesale trade goes. The wholesale trade goes on. Money is laundered and nothing happens. But the day someone kills a policeman, they mobilize the force of the state and the carbon gets 40 years in jails. The cabron. Cabron, sorry. Must sorry. autocorrected. <laughs> and the carbon, <laughs> the carbon. <laughs> carbon sequestration there. <laughs> the cabron. It's a gets new insult. The carbon. You, can, you guys can all start carbon. using it. <laughs> uh, and the cabron gets 40 years in jail and he doesn't escape. Those are the unwritten rules. Here the traffickers kill policemen as if they were lead soldiers. Mm, what's this saying here? I don't know if I follow. So I like this. I like this quote. Yeah. What do you like about it? I, don't, I like this. I don't quote. know if I quite understand it. So I like this. You like quote. to imagine the guy going smack. I well, I do obviously. And there's some others like setup that I left out of this where they're like also eating like enchiladas or some crazy you know s- stupid journalistic mm-hmm. flourish you know. It was an early morning in Guadalajara and the Imprijoladas that Doña Silvia made. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was a little longer. Her eyes were milky. It's not that bad. He's not that bad. He does like a little dramatize his, you know, bravery in going and talking to these, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, whatever anyway. Um, But I mean, it is better than, you guys might think that it still was better than academic dry, right? A little... Way better. Way better flourish. than some fucking professor. Yeah, more better than academic dry. <laughs> anyway. Her so subjectivity was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, apart from, yeah, if you, re- if you read my articles, you'd be like, I should just read that Wainwright. It's more fun. Sure. Um, what was I saying? What were we talking about? Enchiladas. Oh, this guy. <laughs> so, he, 
I think I like this because it's one of the things, and it's, again, this is related to this sort of fact that I felt like I was at least hinting at in my responses to some of your paragraphs, is the fact that um, this is all happening also in the United States. Right. right? It's the so same the, stuff. The, right? the, the tic- network is multinational. The Tigner is is looking at it as though, you know, we see this sort of moralizing U.S. with the drug problem that is this moral problem in Colombia, right? Where it's as though that there isn't an enormous network of drug distribution in the United States. Right. And I think that this sort of gets at that, right? Which is that there is huge amounts of drug trafficking and money laundering and all of these processes that are happening in the U.S. that are happening And occasionally there are big busts made too, but if we know the size of the drug economy, we know that this is larger than certainly people that are being uh, prosecuted. We know certainly from, you know, if you guys have taken other classes, that lots of low-level users and dealers are incarcerated, right? Right. But that there are still many, many high-level people that are sort of circulating the product that are not. And as you said a minute ago, right, are complicit with the same policemen. Right, or if not policemen, right, but with other Somebody, actors, right? That there, actors that there is, there is no the way that economy. these people are and not the state apparatus. Correct, right? That that this it cannot be possibly operating completely apart from, you know, the state. And so I like this partly because it is saying that, in a certain regard, the U.S. is doing what Mexico actually was doing prior to the Calderon drug war that you guys read about in this chapter which is that they're sort of allowing that stuff to go on as long as it's nonviolent. Um, and what happened under Calderon was this explosion of sort of go after them at all costs, which then just increased violence without actually doing anything to the drug supply or transit or whatnot, right? Right, and isn't the conspiracy theory there, not to get too paranoid <laughs> here, but... Tin foil hat. But it's a little Who knows what he's going to say. Yeah, you ready for this? <laughs> but isn't the conspiracy theory there that, right, like, the whole Calderon drug war, right, is like that got a bunch of military aid from the U.S. from Plan Medica. They did. That is true, and w- modeled and off the, of modeled off of Plan Colombia that you guys right? read about. But that, but that a lot of that fucking stuff, right, is that that one of that 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 one of the one of the armed wing of the Sinaloa cartel, the Setas, was the Mexican military. Well, they defected. So. Well, there was I forget, but it so wasn't like the Setas. They there was all kinds of. There's like I don't remember all of this. It's been a while since I read this, but there was definitely this sort of sense that he was favoring. The Setas are kind of like guns for hire. I mean, they have their. But own I thought thing. the Sinaloa cartel just basically hired them. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe they were like mercenaries in between. They were a Sinaloa little bit of mercenaries, and, and they kind of own. They have some of their own territory now. I can't remember their whole beginnings. I mean, they definitely well, their beginnings with the military. Did they get a bunch of shit from Plan Medica? That's the question, right? Well, certainly they definitely there yeah. was like, but what I was gonna say was it that was all Guns, like I mean, and helicopters and stuff like that. Yeah, right? that was like, well, I mean, it just went to the cartels more broadly. There was some evidence. Cool. That <laughs> what a great, what yeah. a great thing. <laughs> great U.S. plan. Um, there was some evidence that I forget which cartel it was that there was less arrests that they there was this sense that perhaps Calderon was favoring 
I forget which cartel because if you looked at like the arrest patterns and who escaped and like whatever, no, no, then you there can was only like people all the stories about the the uh, federal police. No, people. because that's my thing. You have to take one of my other classes and oh, I'll tell you about stories, hanging out with stories. federal policemen in Mexico. Um, yeah, I mean. Este pastilla. <laughs> se llama ecstasy. Yeah, we were we. I can't even. We can't. This is not a podcast. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, I have some crazy stories about about the Mexican federal police, um, or one of them. Mm-hmm. One. One particular, but I don't think I think he was represented. But that is neither here nor there in this story that is I about global change. <laughs> We've gone real off the rails. I, I think I was trying to make this one shorter. I'm, it's probably going to still be an hour, but. That's because we're not professionals. This is my mom. I listen to professionals. So you should listen to your professional <laughs> radio. I can't listen to this. I can't listen to you. Me too. Yeah. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. But anyway, I sort of I, I think that that's like it does highlight this fact that you see one of the things that we're not seeing much about is these stories of who are these people in the U.S. that are doing the other, there is a whole side of the hourglass. Right, if mm-hmm. we're talking about this mm-hmm. as an hourglass, right, right. right? That there's a whole half of that hourglass that's happening in the in the um, consumer markets, um, and yeah, we tend to, you know, I mean, I guess there are shows about that, right? That's the Wire and these kind of things. So it's not that it's not presented in the popular. I don't um, think though. I don't think that. I but I think that that's rare. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I mean, I think uh, that is a rare. Right, it's as though like the drug problem is a Latin Ooh. American problem or a you know wherever problem, and not a. The U.S. is know. the biggest consumer of drugs, but like, how does that happen? Right, like, it's like it as happens though from like millions of street <laughs> level dealers right. at all levels of society. Right, and it's as though that those drugs just like dropped into our Ooh, homes they, randomly. They, yeah, they helicopter <laughs> them in, like. and you're not buying them from someone. Yeah, who's buying them from someone? Who's, who's buying, buying them, them from, from someone? someone? Yeah. Who's buying them from someone? Like. Precisely. Right. Yeah. Cool. So Are we done here? <laughs> Is that like your last card? That's my last card. Yeah. So anyway, I think that I think that that's our last our last thoughts. I mean, I, like I said, I think that for me, one of the things that I wanted to highlight about this reading in particular, given what our class is, is this kind of international dimension. Oh, look, I have done pretty good. It's you only we're about better. 45 we're 40, minutes. 45 minutes. All That's right. Good. All right. Um, got to say goodbye, I guess, so that we can keep it, keep it short. I hope Thanks. that... Hope that you're enjoying the the pendejadas. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Know, I can't remember. If I, I've told some of my students about that, but maybe not all of them. Um. Anyway, so I hope that I hope that this has been been fun, and Joel will, will uh, add some tunes for you guys. I'll add a stupid picture on Blackboard as I did last time. I have another good one for this week. Make sure you hit like and subscribe. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you.